You're listening to episode 173 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Today, we're continuing our conversation on the five masculine instincts by looking at the fourth instinct. Shakespeare described this fourth instinct as the professionals. The man now dresses the part, cuts his beard as expected, and says what is expected. By this point in his life, he has achieved some success, and with it, a reputation. A reputation he cares more and more about protecting. That instinct is central to the lives of both Saul and David as they struggle to live into the expectations of their throne while remaining honest and true before their God. It is a question ultimately of integrity and their ability to confess. I want to show you how that instinct, the instinct of reputation, is at work in them but also in men today, and how we can keep it from leading us to the same ruin. As always, thanks for listening. Well, Peter, it's good to be back and to uh, continue our conversations on the five masculine instincts. And we're picking up the chapter specifically on the instinct of reputation, which is centered around the story of David. So looking forward to talking more about David and reputation. You know, when I first think of David, I think obviously of Giant Slayer and of, you know, the Bathsheba story, um, the Psalms. You know, David is a popular character. Uh, in the Bible, a lot of people know a lot of stories about David, but you assign this instinct of reputation to David. So, uh, so yeah, tell us that. How is David's story about reputation? Sure. Yeah. So it's interesting. David's story is set in the context of Saul's story. It's really hard to understand what's happening in the biblical narrative in First and Second Samuel with David without getting the relationship to Saul. Yeah. And Saul's the first king, but he's the king the people ask for. It's really important to understand this is not God's man. This is the people are begging for a king. Yeah. And the description we get of Saul is the only thing we know about him really is that he was taller than anyone else and more handsome than anyone else. We get a physical description of him. And when he's crowned king, it says that the Israelites took one look at him and said, this is our king, long yeah. live the king. In other words, he appeared like someone, tall, handsome, striking. He appears like somebody that would be a king. That idea of the way the Israelites are looking externally for somebody that mm. fits the mold um, really frames for David coming up, who doesn't fit the mold. He's young. He's the one who's not even brought forward by his father when Samuel's looking for the next one to anoint king. Uh, it sets the context for a lot of what, what David is going to deal with is living in the context in the world of Saul, this mm -hmm. world where outward appearances, the expectations of what a king should look like is driving all of the energy of the story. One of the things I started noticing about all of the David stories is at real pivotal times, there's there's an article of clothing or an act with clothing that's central to the David story. So when um, Saul is or when uh, David fights Goliath, the famous one is Saul puts his armor on him, mm -hmm. and David makes the decision because I don't know this armor to take it off and fight as he is as a shepherd. Mm -hmm. And so you get the sim symbolism like. Saul is trying to take his external appearance yeah. and put it on David. And David rightfully acts not out of this expected appearance, but out of what's true, what's uh, the integrity of who he actually is. But that little article of clothing thing repeats itself in all sorts of interesting ways. When Jonathan removes his cloak as the prince and gives it to David, acknowledging you'll be next heir to the throne instead of me. 
where there's a great scene when um, Saul is pursuing David and encounters the prophets uh, with Samuel at Ramah, and he begins to prophesy, and he strips naked and lays before Samuel. He's thwarted from pursuing David. And a part of the the symbolism is he's robbed of his royal gowns, his mm. clothes. Um, there's a place where Tamar is raped in Second Samuel, and everybody's telling her to sort of keep it quiet, but she tears her robes and refuses to be quiet. She won't. She won't cover herself up with the image of everything being okay. And so you get these that repeat over and over and over. David, um, when he brings the ark back in, he comes dressed in the common linen ephod of just a temple worker, like a servant. And McCall, who is um, Saul's daughter that David married, is sort of embarrassed by him. Like, you don't look the part of a king. You know, mm-hmm. how dare you dress like that? Don't you know who you are? You should be projecting an image of king. And at times, David does really well with this. At times, David understands who he is and doesn't give in to the need to be who people expect him to be or to dress, you know, being the symbol of it. Um, But at other times, he falls prey to the trappings of the power and the privilege. And in Hebrew, this is a little more explicit. The Hebrew word for clothing can also be used to describe deception or disguise. Mm -hmm. Our word disguise and deception are similar in that way. Uh, Or we would use an English word like cloak. Like a cloak is something you could wear, but you could also, if something's cloaked in mystery, we yeah. think of it being hidden. Um, so in Hebrew, that, that, that idea of the clothes are symbolically representing this struggle for David of, do I live out of the expectations of what a king should be? Yeah. And how is that related to the internal truth of who I really am, my yeah. own struggles, my own falling short of that ideal image of a king? It really is in many ways, David's story, a battle for reputation versus integrity, the truth of who he is. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I think all of us, we re wrestle with what that looks like for ourselves, reputation, especially guys. I mean, we, we might not say we don't care what people think, but we, we do care what people think. I mean, I think it's human nature too, but especially, especially with men, you know, we've talked about ambition and we talked about sarcasm. Um, and these things are really tied to how we believe people are viewing us and the reputation that we carry before we come into a place or into a room, what's before us and what's after us. And so reputation's a big deal to men. So why, why, why do you believe that's so important for men specifically on the subject of reputation? Yeah. Well, Shakespeare specifically refers to this stage as the man who's probably, you know, he, and the way Shakespeare presents him, he's probably a businessman or a merchant. He's had some level of success. And he's less driven by the need to achieve that success, and he's now more driven by the need to protect it, right? So he he knows he's earned a bit of a reputation, and suddenly protecting that reputation becomes the thing that's motivating and important, which I see in the David story. Um, he comes to be king through God's leading and through this unique anointing and through yeah. these faith-filled acts. But as he gets the palaces and the power and the there's the, the line before the David and Bathsheba event, it was the time when the kings went off to war. But here David is not going out. He's no yeah. longer active in that. Um, and so many of his actions during that point tend to be more about how do I protect myself, guard myself, cover up the sins that I've already committed. Yeah. And so for all men, I think at some point, Men are known for being compartmentalizers, true of some, maybe not of others, but there's a real tendency or a temptation to say, what is that thing that I'm known for or good at? So maybe it's a job, maybe it is a hobby, maybe it's a being humorous or being talented in certain way. And is it possible to so identify and build a reputation around that one thing I'm known for 
that will actually free me from the obligation of having to be honest or transparent about the things I know I'm not as good at, particularly the things that I may not like about myself. Can we compartmentalize those things and live in the public reputation of the thing we succeeded at and be able to do that in such a way that it actually keeps us from having to deal with the other things that may lurk beneath the surface? Which that speaks to the subject of integrity. And so how does a lack of integrity um, really impact or shape a man's life and, and relate it to David's story. Yeah. So I use in the book, I talk about integrity as you'll hear this phrase, structural integrity of something. So yeah. if, if there's an old bridge and we're trying to decide if we should tear it down and start over or repair yeah. it, you'll have somebody come in um, and an engineer will try to measure how much structural integrity it has. What yeah. are its weak points? What are its, when we think of integrity, that's often a word that you hear used in sort of cliche ways. Yeah. Most people might not even have a good definition. You would, yeah. you imagine integrity as something like you always do the right thing or a person of character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the kind of thing you see every couple of years on lawn, lawn signs for politicians, right? <laughs> Principles yeah. and integrity. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you don't really know what that means. Yeah. We imagine it means something like he's going to always do the right thing. Yeah. I, I don't think that's the right way of thinking about integrity because it feels if the definition of integrity is I always do what is right. Well, then. I'm the first to admit I'm not a person of integrity. That sure. seems like an unachievable goal. And so I do think it becomes a kind of word we use to project instead of something we've really wrestled with. Yeah. If you think about integrity like that image of structural integrity, yeah. then the way what integrity really is, is knowing the full of something. Yeah. The whole thing is known. So in other words, we'll talk about integrity coming from the root word of integer, an integer being a whole number. There's no fraction. There's no parts or pieces. Um, it's a whole thing. Yeah. And what that means is to be a person of integrity does not mean that you always do the right thing. It doesn't mean that you always do the, the, the perfect thing. A person of integrity would say, I'm aware and have inventoried and taken account of all of who I am, both in the good and the bad. A person of integrity is able to speak honestly about who they are as a whole person and not to compartmentalize their life or try to live into the public reputation, but are, but are able to take accountability for and responsibility for even the ways that they fall short. I think that's a more helpful way of thinking of integrity because it's more achievable. Like hopefully you're getting better, but at the root to be a person, a man of integrity means you just have dealt with everything that's there. There's no, fractions. There's no stuff swept under the rug. There's no compartmentalized things you've tried to remove. So it's like a a healthy self-awareness of ourselves really is another way of looking. Yeah. And sometimes I think true integrity would mean even digging deeper into why those things, it's not just, I know I sin in this particular way, but what is that connected to? And really trying to understand why that's a particular weakness. I mean, this is what the engineer's doing, right? Where are the cracks in the bridge and what are the risks of integrity means I have a whole picture of that thing. So really trying to, and I don't think it's a, you know, Hey, you did it. You downloaded all the files. It's complete. Like you figured everything out. It really is a process of constantly coming back and saying, what's changing? Why am I reacting that way? It's more of a curiosity about yourself um, and your own tendencies that produces that sense of integrity. It's all there. It's all true. Yeah. Well, and specifically with David, you know, as a result of that, you talk about confession and just kind of David's confession. And so speak to that a little bit, because I think that's very helpful. Yeah, well, where David, you imagine David as a person of integrity. And it's interesting that David is our 
writer of the Psalms. I mean, not all of them, but we've, you know, we imagine these Psalms are from the voice of David written by David. Um, and really the Psalms are a, an inventorying yeah. of the heart. It's, yeah. these are the emotions and the yeah. experiences and the feelings yeah. for celebration and worship to lament to frustration. I mean, these are all here. David's David through the Psalms is really giving us a, a landscape, a holistic yeah. image and the integrity of what a whole person is. But yet what's so striking about the scene in which Nathan, the prophet, confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba and really the murdering of Uriah, Bathsheba's yeah. husband, which is yeah. David's own friend and a soldier in his unit, is Nathan lays out this little story um, about a man in David's kingdom who had special guests coming over and needed to feed them. But instead of taking from his own flock, which was great, he was a rich man, he stole the single lamb from his neighbor mm. to be able to feed his guests who were there. And in that moment, David immediately responds by saying, this man should be executed. He yeah. places judgment on them. It, it's not too hard to recognize from the beginning that what Nathan is laying out is a kind of allegory, an analogy for what David has just done by yeah. taking Bathsheba and murdering Uriah. In fact, the way David tells that story in the Hebrew, it almost starts with a kind of once upon a time. Like it, it doesn't feel like a true story. It yeah. feels like a setup. Yeah. But David walks right into it, almost completely blind to it because mm. he can't, he can't see himself in the story as yeah. blatant as it is for all of the readers yeah. and as profound as the sins and actions he's just taken. That when we compartmentalize our lives and when we refuse to examine parts of our lives, what we end up producing are these massive blind spots. Yeah. Like we just don't see profound things about ourselves, and we stumble into unbelievable amounts of destruction and yeah. actions we never thought we were capable of yeah. because we've never really taken a long look at what is going on inside of us. And so for, for David, the whole confrontation with Nathan is really a question of, can David reintegrate these two things? Can he reconcile the public reputation of King, a man after God's own heart yeah. with some unbelievably miraculous moments in his past sure. with his current reality of a man who's predatorily assaulted a woman, yeah. murdered her husband, covered the whole thing up through abuses of power and through unbelievable sin and pride. Wow. Is there a way for those two Davids yeah. to be reconciled into one? And to David's credit, um, he does. He repents. Even yeah. after Nathan calls him out, he recognizes immediately, God, I've sinned against you. The, yeah. This word is true. And he, in that moment, by the prophetic witness, sees himself for who he really is. And in a way that's not clean and simple, there are huge consequences oh, sure. that play out in David's yeah. life. But at least it's a step forward for him of trying to bring together these two separate parts. Yeah. How does then his confession, or really for us too, just confession in general lead to strength as a result of that. Because, you know, I, I think about just anytime you're carrying something, you know, if it's a, whether it's a deep, dark sin or just something that, you know, you need to release that place of repentance, that confession, immediately you feel lightened and lifted. So you feel stronger because you're not weighed down. And so talk about how confession leads to strength a little bit. Well, the worst, the worst forms of disasters we have are the ones that we didn't see coming. Yeah. Um, you know, you think about in our own history recently, whether it's catastrophic building collapses or bridges or infrastructure that's fallen apart, we have these moments where there are some profound losses. Yeah. And the thing that's most devastating about them is just not, not having seen them coming. Yeah. And I think part of what David's story does is it suggests you have to do this work and you have to dig into it because yeah. without it, the thing you're really prone to, 
prone to is the collapse you don't see. That's yeah. why I like this conversation about structural integrity. Yeah. You're really probing your life to try to recognize where are these disasters possibly coming yeah. that I'm blind to, as yeah. David seems yeah. to be. And maybe the thing that's most interesting about David is the fact that we have all of this stuff written about him. Yeah. I mean, David's the most powerful man in the kingdom oh, at the time. Yeah. And he doesn't hire a PR firm to cover it all up. Yeah. He doesn't put to death the guy who's been keeping records on all of the details. Yeah. There's no image consultant that he brings in. I mean, he dies leaving these chronicles and stories of his life with the good and the bad. I mean, we end up with a pretty whole picture of who he was as a man. And yeah. the fact he doesn't in death feel the need to burn all of the bad stuff, yeah. but gives it to us, I think says a lot about that yeah. final mark of integrity on his life. So then... What would you say would be the final reputation of David's life then? We talked your, about this early. Yeah, 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 we talked about this early in that these biblical characters, they're not necessarily heroes as much as they sure. expose our humanity. Yeah. And I think it's telling that the Psalms are associated with David. Yeah. And that we know more about David than we know about any other biblical character. Yeah. We have more material. And so I think what David gives us in an interesting way, perhaps more than any of the other characters, yeah. is a whole picture yeah. of the integrity, right? Yeah. This whole image yeah. of what it is to be a man for yeah. all of the good, for the bad. Yeah. You find yourself in David's story the in ways. Yeah, yeah, in ways that yeah. in some of the other stories we get glimpses or pieces. Yeah. It really is remarkable. The man who wrestled with this tension of do I live in this little sliver of public reputation? Yeah. Or do I entrust the whole truth, the integrity of my life? In the end, we get the whole truth of who David is for yeah. good and bad. And yeah. Yeah. for his credit. Yeah. No, it's good. That's good. Any final thoughts on David? I think a lot of people will, you know, it's funny when I preach on David, I usually have uh, sort of two reactions. So there will be people who will say, you know, gosh, I, I've never liked David. Like, I, <laughs> I, you know, who, he's a man after God's own heart, but look at what he does. And how could a person yeah. do this? And then often I'll have people, sometimes it's just an email the day after, or, you know, in the hall afterwards who will say, there's something in me that so profoundly resonates with David. Yeah. And I think what they're saying is not... I'm harboring the kinds of secrets and David no, is, although yeah. that happens. I think what most of them are saying is, I want that possibility of reconciling those two things. Yeah. I want to be able to be honest about the ways I've failed. Yeah. And I want to be able to be someone who's called it a man after God's own heart. Yeah. And I don't know how to bring those things together. Yeah. And that act of confession yeah. that David leads us into that the Bible calls for yeah. is the doorway to that grace that lets us start to find that integrity, that wholeness. Yeah. It makes that a possibility. I think there's a lot of men out there looking for that. How do 100%. I reconcile those things? I couldn't agree more. That's a great word. That's great. That's good. Well, so, David's a powerful one. Boy, he and, is. Uh, he, I think I see we're all resonating with it, but it takes us to the uh, the fifth one, which is yeah. ultimately the instinct of apathy, which gets yeah. us into Abraham next. Father Abraham. Here we go. Well, it's hard to believe, but we are just two weeks from the official launch of The Five Masculine Instincts. And if you haven't had a chance to pre-order, I would really appreciate it if you take the time to do it. There's some pre-order bonuses like a 97-page study guide, as well as all of these interviews you've been listening to in a uh, professional quality video format you could use in a small group or something like that. 
And also, if you haven't taken the Instincts Assessment, there's a special uh, bonus going on. If you take that before the book's launch, you could win a uh, package of steaks for a year. If you go back and listen to the first of these conversations, I think that'll make sense to you as well. So uh, you want to get entered to do that by March 1st. You can do it by going to the 5masculineinstincts.com. Find all of the information there. And if you have already pre-ordered the book, let me again just say thank you so much. I really appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time. 